You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. If you would, uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles this morning. Uh, We are going to be in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we're going to be focusing on verses 20 and 21. Uh, This is going to finish up the sermon series that we have been doing the last month called City on a Hill. Uh, Just so you know where we're going starting next week, we're going to dive back into the book of Joshua. Uh, We'll spend the the rest of October uh, and most of November kind of finishing up the the latter half of that book. Um, And then we're going to finish out the year doing a Advent series uh, to uh, usher us into the Christmas season. Uh, But if you've been with us over the last few weeks specifically, Uh, We have been looking at all of the different strategies that the Bible gives us to be like that city set on a hill uh, that is able to shine the light of the gospel down into the darkness of the communities around us. And I've said this a few times now, but as a church, we summarized these strategies in the form of a short statement. We said that we wanted to be a church that is knowing, growing, and going together. Now, we've looked at the first three parts of that statement, what it means to know, grow, and go. So in John chapter 17, we're now going to see what it looks like to do all of those things together, to do them in unity as a family, as the body of Christ. So let me pray for our time and then read our text for us. Father, uh, thank you, again, just for, uh, for another opportunity uh, to study your word. Uh, I pray that we would not misuse this opportunity. Um, I pray that you would remove any distractions uh, that we may have, um, give us energy, give us focus. Uh, just let us see the truths of this text clearly, and let us see clearly how we might apply them to our lives mask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Uh, Hear from the word of the Lord this morning. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 21. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I don't know who originally said this, uh, probably somebody much smarter than myself, uh, but I've heard this said, it said before that there are two ways in which you can be united. Uh, One is by being frozen together, uh, and the other is by being melted together. And that second way is always a better way to be united together than the first. I mean, just think about that imagery of being frozen. If I'm thawing out a a bag of frozen chicken, well, as soon as I start heating it up, that ice is going to turn into water, and all of those individual pieces that they were stuck together— they're all going to come apart. But when something is melted together, it's not going to come apart. 
Uh, when you have a simmering soup on the stove, for example, you crank up that heat. Well, all of those ingredients just meld and blend together all the more. And oftentimes, you actually end up with an even better product as a result the longer you let those ingredients meld and mix together. And in essence, that's what Jesus is getting at in this prayer that he prays for his followers in John chapter 17. He's praying that they would be united in that second way. That even when the heat of persecution comes, as it inevitably will, um, he's praying that it would cause them to come together in unity all the more. And this morning, um, I want to look at this part of Jesus's prayer. I want to spend a few minutes kind of talking about the context surrounding uh, this prayer Uh, And then we're going to dive in deeper into the content of this prayer as well uh, and see what kind of applications that it has for us. Uh, But since we haven't been studying the book of John, uh, we just need to take a moment to understand a bit better about the context of what is going on here. Um, And these words are words of Jesus, and they're actually words that he prayed immediately following the Last Supper. This prayer came right before Jesus goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane and is betrayed by Judas. So this is the night before his crucifixion. Jesus' last night on earth before his death, and he asks or, or prays for not only his current disciples, but also for those who will believe in him through their word. So Jesus is praying even for his future followers who will later come to believe in the message of the gospel. So on his last night alive, you and I were on his mind. Not not that he was thinking about our names individually. I'm not so arrogant to assume that, Uh, but his mind was on the church and the generations of followers that would come to be his disciples long after he departed from this world. So so that's what we're studying today. We're actually studying Jesus' prayer for you. And when I was single, I can remember taking the time to pray for my future spouse Even before I knew if that was even the plan that the Lord had for me, I took time to pray for her. Then after Ashley and I uh, were married, I can also remember taking the time to pray for um, our future kids as well. Also before we even knew that the Lord would one day bless us with Jonah and Sophia. And that's what Jesus wanted to do for each of you. So if you've ever wondered if others have been praying for you and if they've been praying for your life, well, know that Jesus was doing precisely that. 2,000 years, even before you were born, he was praying for you. So that's kind of the context surrounding this prayer. Uh, This is what Jesus spent his last night on earth doing He spent it praying for you and I, that you and I might be one, that you and I might be united. So so now let's just dive deeper into the content of this prayer and see what Jesus really is getting at. What's he actually praying about? And there are three truths 
about unity that he focuses on in this prayer and that I want to point out to you this morning. The first one is this. Jesus wants to make it clear that the basis of our unity is our belief in the gospel. The basis of our unity is our belief in the gospel. That's what he says in verse 20. He, he, he prays, he's praying for, for those who will believe in me through their word, which means that he's praying for all of those who will come to salvation through the word or the message of the gospel that will be preached to them one day by those who are already disciples of Christ. So, so what is going to bind all Christians together it is our mutual belief in Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection and the salvation that can only be found there and there alone. And I just want us to think about uh, and just dwell on this reality for a minute uh, that the basis of our unity is our belief in the gospel, that, that our unity is centered around nothing other than the cross of Christ. And as we think about this, I want you to understand a couple of things that this kind of unity doesn't require, and then I want you to see and understand what it does require. So first, here's a couple of things that this kind of unity, it doesn't require. First, it doesn't require the dumbing down of deep doctrine. Being unified together as one body it doesn't require the dumbing down of deep doctrine. Um, in many churches that exist, uh, there is what I call a lowest common denominator Christianity there. Uh, these kinds of churches are everywhere. Uh, they, they even exist in our own area. Um, and generally, what these kind of churches want to do is they want to attract as many people as they can, often from other churches, especially churches where there has been uh, significant tension or division. And so because these churches, uh, they have so many different people coming from all these different backgrounds that they're trying to draw in and attract, they develop this lowest common denominator mentality they're usually not associated with any particular denomination, um, and they usually only want to focus on the most basic of Christian doctrines that everyone can agree on. So issues like homosexuality, they don't talk about it. Uh, the differences between men and women and the different gender roles we have, those things aren't discussed. Anything at all that could be divisive or controversial, that is all swept to the side and they, again, they just want to focus on the most basic, lowest common denominators of the faith that won't cause any kind of stir. But, but the problem with churches like that is that they will never properly be able to disciple their members. They may grow in attendance, but they'll never grow in the maturity of their faith. And the members of those kinds of churches, they really won't be united together in their beliefs because when it comes down to it, they really don't even know exactly what they believe because those things aren't being taught to them. So we shouldn't want to or have to dumb down our doctrine in an attempt to be uh, united together. 
But similarly, unity also doesn't require universal agreement. It doesn't require that you dumb down deep doctrine, and it also doesn't require universal agreement. You don't have to agree on everything for everyone to be united. There are all kinds of doctrinal matters uh, that we as a church, we're just never going to agree on. Um, And that's okay. Uh, For example, let me just ask, uh, what does it look like or what will it look like when Jesus returns? What's the second coming going to look like? Is there going to be a time of tribulation that Christians are present on the earth for? Uh, Or will we all just be whisked away to heaven uh, before any of that tribulation comes our way? Uh, For that matter, how should we even think about issues related to the rapture, Um, especially considering that the word rapture itself isn't actually even found in the Bible? So I I start talking about those things, and, and everybody in this room immediately, you have your own thoughts, you have your own opinions, And often they're going to differ from others in this congregation. So even just within the walls of this church, we're not all going to agree on many issues. And at the end of the day, we're going to walk away with different opinions on the matter. And it's okay uh, to be adamant and to be vocal and even be passionate about those opinions. It's okay to disagree. We can all still be part of the same congregation and have you know, even deep disagreements with one another. But, but lastly, and pay close attention to this uh, before we move on in our text, because this is vitally important, that this is what unity does require. It requires a foundation of forgiveness. You don't have to dumb down doctrine. You don't have to universally agree on everything. But unity does require a foundation of mutual forgiveness. Just think about the gospel for a moment. Uh, at its core, what is it? The gospel is the reality that Jesus put our spiritual needs above his own. You were living in sin. And what did Jesus do? He left his throne in heaven. He left all of those comforts that he had. Uh, He left those streets of gold. He humbled himself by being born as a baby in a manger. Also, he could sacrifice himself on a Roman torture device known as a cross. So that if you would just turn from your sins and submit yourself to Jesus, then you could have forgiveness. And without that forgiveness, then there would still be division between you and God the Father. You you wouldn't be united with God the Father. There would still be division. His wrath would still be looming over you because of your sin. So if you want to be one with God, it first required forgiveness. Your, Your sins had to be forgiven by Jesus. So if you want to be unified and one with the rest of the body of Christ, then it is also going to require that same foundation. It's going to require you to be self-sacrificing and to put others' needs above your own. It's going to require a willingness to love and serve others, even when they're not acting like the most lovely of people. 
It's going to require a willingness to be able to forgive others regularly, again and again, even when they've wronged you, even when you think you are in the right. And they're going to need that same willingness to forgive you as well when you have wronged them, because it goes both ways. The forgiveness that we have received through the gospel is the central foundation of our faith. So it also must be the central foundation of our unity with one another. So the basis of our unity is our belief in the gospel. That's the first truth that we've seen in Jesus's prayer. Um, The second that I want to see, I want you to see is this. I want us to see that the standards of our unity are shown in the Trinity. The basis of our unity is the belief in the gospel, and the standards of that unity are showed uh, are, are shown to us, are, are modeled for us in the Trinity. Look at verse 21, where Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So, so Jesus wants our unity to be modeled after the unity that is found between him and, and, and the Father and the Holy Spirit. He, he wants our unity to be modeled after the unity that's found in the Trinity. And we've already talked about you know, the relationship between unity and the gospel. So now we're going to talk about that relationship between our unity and God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Just just think about the Trinity for a moment. Um, Each member of the Godhead is distinct from the others. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Yet, they are all simultaneously and perfectly united as one. We often describe it by saying, one God revealed in three persons. And what this means for you and I is that unity doesn't require uniformity. Unity doesn't require uniformity. When you think about those words, unity and uniformity, they're not the same thing. Each member of the Godhead can be separate and distinct from one another. They can look different. They can serve in different roles and capacities, yet they are still united together as one. And the same should be true for us as well. Let me just give you an example of this, thinking about our uh, denomination that this church is affiliated with. Uh, This church is a part of a larger denomination known as the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, But I've heard it said that the Southern Baptist Convention is really only a denomination once a year. Once a year, the nearly 50,000 Southern Baptist churches that exist all across the United States, they come together to talk about how we can work together. We, We pool our money into one giant pot so that we can fund our seminaries and train up more pastors. Uh, we pool up our money in another big pot in order to send thousands of missionaries abroad for the spread of the gospel. But if you were to go into any of those individual Southern Baptist churches on any uh, given Sunday morning throughout the rest of the year, many of those churches would look nothing alike. But for starters, the locations are going to be vastly different. 
We have churches that meet in traditional buildings with steeples, uh, but we also have churches that meet in movie theaters and schools and other rented venues. And inside all of those different locations, all of those congregations are going to worship differently as well. In in some congregations, you'll see uh, that the worship is led by piano and organ. Uh, Sometimes all they have is a CD that they play, or or sometimes their, their worship is led via guitar and drums. And then not even in all of those churches and all of those worship services, Despite all of those other differences that I've already mentioned, just to add another one to the mix, many of those churches aren't even going to be worshiping in the same language. Even in the United States, more and more, we have Spanish-speaking Baptist churches and Korean-speaking Baptist churches and Chinese-speaking Southern Baptist churches. By the grace of God... And for his glory, we are reaching more and more people groups with the gospel. So so even churches within our own denomination, uh, within the borders of our own country, we are growing more and more diverse. We're, We're not uniform in how we look or in how we do things. But by the grace of God, we can still be united. And we can still work together as one body and one denomination to further advance the kingdom of God. That brings me this morning to the last truth that I want us to see in Jesus's prayer for his disciples. Uh, We've seen that the basis of our unity, it's our belief in the gospel, um, and that the standards of this unity, they are shown to us through the Trinity Lastly, we also need to see that the degree of our unity will determine the spread of the gospel. The degree to which you and I have unity will determine the spread of the gospel. Just look at the very last words of Jesus in this part of his prayer, the very end of verse 21. He prays to the Father that all of his disciples will be united so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I don't know if if you've really thought about this, but this is a heavy and weighty reality. Just, Just let this sink in for just a moment. I mean, on one hand, it's exciting to think about that our unity can actually help our evangelism, that that when people see us as a church united together, that they're going to want to join us, and and they'll be curious about this faith that we have. But this is also a very sobering reality as well, understanding that any sense of division or disunity that we have can actually hinder the spread of the gospel. I mean, just, just think about that for a moment. Just let that sink in. But when churches, for example, disagree on petty things, like what color should they paint the walls of the sanctuary, that can actually have eternal consequences. That when we can't even agree on what kind of carpeting that we should install on the floor, that can actually have repercussions regarding the advancement of God's kingdom. Our disunity can actually hinder the spread of the gospel. 
And that's because nobody wants to be a part of a dysfunctional family. You know, nobody in our community is ever going to look at all of that backbiting and that bickering and that bitterness that some Christians have towards one another. They're never going to look at that and say, wow, that's a great church. I want to be a part of that. I want my kids to grow up and be surrounded by that. That's not going to happen. But when we come together as the body of Christ and we are united as one, well, that unity can actually accelerate the spread of the gospel rather than see it hindered. And just to give you an example of this, I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at a specific church for a moment to see how this plays out in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11 uh, mentions the establishment of a church in Antioch. Uh, early on in the book of Acts, many of the believers, the followers of Christ that were living in Jerusalem, they were all scattered elsewhere because of this intense persecution uh, that swept across the city. Many of them landed in this prominent city of Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria. And up to this point, that church in Jerusalem was made up primarily of Jewish converts to Christianity. Uh, but Antioch actually had the privilege of being the first church in history to be made up of both Jewish and Gentile followers of Christ. Those who had formerly been Jews, as well as those who had formerly been pagans. So this church was very uh, ethnically and very culturally diverse. I mean, it had people from all kinds of different backgrounds. If you look at uh, Acts chapter 13, just to give you another example of this, verse 1, we're told about the leadership of this church. And not surprisingly, their leadership was just as diverse as their membership. Luke tells us that there were in this church at Antioch, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, Barnabas, many of you may know, he was uh, originally from the island of Cyprus out in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, but you also have this man named Simeon, and his nickname was Niger, which is the Latin word uh, it actually means black or uh, dark. So likely this man was African. He probably had a very dark skin complexion. Uh, that was probably the same for Lucius as well. We're told that he's from Cyrene. Uh, Cy Cyrene is in modern day Libya. So this man was from North Africa. Then also it, it, it's mentioned to us, about this man named Menean, who is said to have been a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, which means he was likely a very wealthy, uh, very established Roman citizen. And then finally, of course, it mentions Saul, who we also known as the Apostle Paul, uh, who was originally a Jew from Tarsus, uh, which is in modern-day Turkey. So, so the leadership of this church was comprised from those from all over the place, from across the Mediterranean, from Asia, from Africa. You have guys that are seemingly just ordinary individuals that we never hear about again anywhere else. Uh, but you also have guys like Menean who are incredibly wealthy and influential members of Roman society. 
So, so you would never expect to walk through the doors of any building and see all of these different guys in the same room together, much less leading the same church together. But that's exactly what happened. That's precisely what actually made them such an incredibly influential church. And that this is what made them such an evangelistic force to be reckoned with. That they seemed like the unlikeliest cast of characters that would ever be united for a common cause. Their church was comprised of free men and slaves and rich and poor and Jews and Gentiles, but they were all living and working together in harmony. That that kind of unity existed nowhere else in the Roman Empire. And so outsiders looking in, they had no other way to explain what was going on in that church other than just by admitting that there must have been some kind of divine intervention at work in the life of these, these people. I mean, it, it would take nothing short but an act of God to bring together this group of individuals that otherwise would have had wanted to have nothing to do with one another. So, so Antioch's unity was actually the greatest tool for evangelism that they had at their disposal. And the same ought to be true for us today. When our churches are comprised of both the rich and the poor, the old and the young, those from all kinds of different ethnic backgrounds, those of different political convictions, people with different personalities and interests and hobbies, people that you could never envision stepping into the same room together. When you step through the doors of a church and you see that kind of diversity, yet they are all united together in the bonds of Christ. Well, then you know that that kind of unity could only exist through a divine intervention and through the very act of God. This is the kind of unity that actually has the power to transform lives and to reach the lost with the gospel. Only a a miracle and an act of God could ever explain adequately that kind of unity. And it makes outsiders want to be involved and it makes them curious about this faith that we have. So so this kind of this is the kind of unity that that doesn't just envision people who are stuck and just kind of frozen together where, yeah, maybe they're they're kind of united. You know, they all sit in, in the same room on a Sunday morning for an hour Uh, But that's just until any disagreements arise, and then that tension uh, is going to melt and thaw that those bonds that they've got, and everything is just going to fall apart. That's not the kind of unity that Jesus envisioned. That's not the one he was fervently praying for. He he was praying for the kind of unity that, that melts us together until our hearts are one. You know, we may look different We may think different, we may act different, but the more pressure that comes our way and the more that persecution just heats things up, the more and more we ought to meld together and and the more and more we ought to come inseparably united. 
That that's the kind of unity that we have through Christ and that will be the catalyst to cause us to want to know the Lord together and to grow in our relationship with him together and to go out into the world together so that others may come to know him as well. Because of the bonds that we all share as brothers and sisters in Christ, we will be compelled to know, grow, and go and to do all of those things united together. So let me pray. Father, uh, just thank you. Thank you again for the bonds that we share with one another through the shed blood of Christ. I pray that we would realize this all the more, knowing that no matter what kind of differences we have as uh, believers, you know, no matter what kind of tension arises among us from time to time, uh, that we ought to still be united around our central belief in the gospel. Father, I pray that the gospel would just cause us to lay out for one another a foundation of forgiveness. Even when we do hurt one another, even when we say things to one another that we regret, um, I pray that we would be willingly willing to just regularly forgive one another just as Christ forgave us. And I pray that that foundation of forgiveness would lead us to just an ever more established bond of unity among us. And I pray that this unshakable, this, this unbreakable bond that we share, it would actually go to further advance the kingdom of Christ here in Lewis County and beyond. And that even non-believers would see that despite being such a diverse body of believers, we are all still united. Father, I just pray that that would be cause for others to be curious about our faith and would just be a cause for them to want to submit their own lives to Christ. Just ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.